Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called My Pledges of Allegiance. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, July the 5th, 2015. This week I'm celebrating two milestones. On June the 30th, Journey with Jesus finishes its 11th year as a weekly webzine for the global church. This year, as in every year, we serve 217 countries. In 175 of those countries, we had five or more readers. And then, on the 4th of July, I'll celebrate Independence Day and the birth of America 239 years ago. These two celebrations make for an awkward mashup. Our global readership is a constant reminder that being Christian and being American are two very different things. <clears throat> At church last Sunday, I was reminded of how good and natural it is to love your own country. Krishna described to me how his grandmother moved to America to live with her extended family stayed here for decades, but then returned to India when she was 80. There's nothing wrong with loving your own land. People right, rightly prefer their unique ethnic roots, foods, history, language, culture, and music. Homesickness is a compliment to the sights, sounds, and smells that we love and that we miss when we're far from home. <clears throat> I experienced this pull of patriotism when I lived in Moscow from 1991 to 1995. I enjoyed so much about living in that great city, but I also missed many things about America. It's true, there's just no place like home. The problem with patriotism is that it can lead to nationalism. And nationalism, as C.S. Lewis once observed, believes that my nation is markedly superior to all others. In theological parlance, that's heresy. Lewis once encountered a pastor who espoused such noxious nationalism. He asked him, doesn't every nation think of itself as the best? The clergyman responded in all seriousness, yes, but in England it is true. <clears throat> and Lewis thus concludes, to be sure this conviction had not made my friend, God rest his soul, a villain, only an extremely lovable old ass. It can, however, produce asses that kick and bite. On the lunatic fringe, it may shade off into that popular racism which Christianity and science equally forbid. <clears throat> the relationship between my pledge of allegiance to both church and state is inherently awkward and ambiguous. We should reject binary ways of black and white thinking about this subject in favor of the many shades of gray that we find both in Scripture 
and in experience. There's no timeless blueprint in Scripture, only the witness of God's people in different times and places. In 2 Samuel 5 for this week, David is anointed as God's elect king. Isaiah described the pagan Cyrus as God's elect servant. Paul advises believers to submit to the governing authorities. Peter tells us to honor the king. And so, sometimes, believers cooperate with the state. But other rulers, Pharaoh, Nebuchadnezzar, Herod, Neo, Nero, and in our own time, Mao Zedong, persecuted God's people. John portrays Rome as the whore of Babylon who devours the saints. And so, at other times, believers subvert rather than submit to state powers, as under Nazi Germany and South African apartheid. Because of this diverse witness of Scripture, believers have related to the state in many different ways. <clears throat> For the first 300 years, believers were an invisible minority of 5 to 10 percent of Rome's 60 million people. They were inconspicuous and non-confrontational. Still, political invisibility always risks cultural irrelevance. Later, the state persecuted the church. Although Candida Moss has argued that persecution wasn't as severe as often thought. By the 4th century, the church had its own calendar of martyrs. And after the martyrs, the ascetics fled to the desert. They spurned authority, both sacred and secular. When Constantine legalized Christianity, the church enjoyed privileges like never before tax exemptions, spectacular state-funded basilicas, and the return of confiscated property. But when cooperation is so beneficial, compliance is often a temptation. In the late Middle Ages, the church even acted like a state. Gary Wills writes, popes launched crusades in the Holy Land in Spain, backed inquisitions, empowered mendicant orders, anointed kings, and put whole countries under interdict. Today we cherish the separation of church and state, which separation includes religious pluralism. In fact, this is one of the best reasons to celebrate the 4th of July. Until the ratification of the First Amendment of the Constitution of the United States, it was unheard of for a state to be without an official religion. 800 years ago this summer, on June 15, 1215, King John of England signed the Magna Carta. I still remember the thrill of seeing one of the earliest copies that's on permanent display in the British Library in London. The Magna Carta repudiates the idea that Caesar can act like a god. No ruler should claim divine rights. It codified the idea that the rule of law limits the role of government. 
As Gilles Lepore has observed, despite all the historical complexities of the Magna Carta, this simple idea has become so powerful that today we think of it not as the grudging concession of a king in one country, but as the inherent right of every human being. And conversely, God does not act like some Caesar. He's not a petty tyrant or tribal deity who favors only his people. God created the cosmos. In Genesis, he promised to bless all the families of the earth. And in the last book of Revelation, he gathers people from every nation, tribe, people, and language. In a clever play on words, Paul says that God is the patera of every patria, the father from whom every family derives its name. He isn't the God of Jews alone, or the God only of Christians. In Ephesians, Paul says, God is the father of every family in heaven and on earth. Which is also why Paul says that God will redeem not just humanity, but the whole creation. About a hundred years after Jesus, the epistle to Diognetus described the believer's ambiguous relationship to the state as similar to that of a resident alien. We read, Every foreign land was to them as their native country, and every land of their birth as a land of strangers. As I thank God for journeying with Jesus' global readership and celebrate the birth of America, I'm feeling this awkward and ambiguous relationship between the sacred eternal and the secular temporal. As for my own America, I like how Gary Wells put it. The America of the founding, we now recognize, was terribly flawed by slaughter of Indians, enslavement of blacks, and suppression of women, among other things. And the contemporary United States will someday be seen in retrospect as a plutocracy with impoverished citizens as a bloated war machine with overkill stockpiles of unusable weaponry, as a place of volunteer armies ground down by constant use, of ruinously expensive political campaigning, and clogged non-governing, making ineffectual gestures toward a failing ecosystem and with a stupor of admiration for guns. But we still love our country and we should. For books this week, I review a title by Peter Brown. It's called The Ransom of the Soul, Afterlife and Wealth in Early Western Christianity. Cambridge, Harvard University Press, 2015. This book is 262 pages. In his previous book from 2012, Through the Eye of a Needle, Peter Brown, Professor Emeritus at Princeton and the leading historian of late antiquity, explored how Christians in the Roman Empire grappled with the words of Jesus to the rich young ruler. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God.
This newest book turns from the role of wealth in this life to its connection with the soul in the afterlife. It takes its title from Proverbs 13.8, The ransom of the soul of a man is his wealth. In the words of Jesus in Matthew 19.21 and Luke 12.33 about storing up treasure in heaven, Jesus seems to say that there's a transfer of earthly treasure to heaven through almsgiving, a spiritual reward for financial generosity. Christians help the poor for many reasons. There's no unchanging or timeless master narrative here, says Brown. Only changing views and shifting arguments from the ancient world of the 3rd century to the early Middle Ages of the 7th century, which is the time period that Brown covers. Social solidarity, compassion, and charity are all obvious reasons to help the poor. But Brown is especially interested in how almsgiving also became a purely expiatory action for the atonement of sin to heal and protect one's soul. It's a theme that's also explored by Gary Anderson in his book, Charity, The Place of the Poor in the Biblical Tradition. What can one know or expect about the afterlife in the looming prospect of the Last Judgment? Augustine was reticent on these matters, whereas others spoke in great detail and with absolute confidence. The questions piled up. What's the difference between the special death of a saintly martyr, an impious reprobate, and the regular death of an ordinary believer, that vast majority of Christians who are average stragglers? Does burial beside a saint confer advantages? What about endowing a monastery, those engines of prayer? What happens to the soul and the body after death? Is there a waiting period, or does one go instantly to paradise? Since most of us are far from perfect when we die, do we need further purgation after death? And given the porous boundary between this life and the next, what can the living do for those dead who languish in the tantalizing twilight between the glory of the saints and the black darkness of the reprobate? Brown admits that these questions are an acute embarrassment to moderns in general and abhorrent to Protestants in particular. Having said that, one thing's for sure. We will all experience our own eschatological event at death. And then what? In Peter Brown's words, just how are heaven and earth joined by human agency? The author is Peter Brown, The Ransom of the Soul. this week, I review an unlikely candidate that ended up being a fantastic movie. It's called Mr. Rogers and Me, from the year 2013. For 30 years and 900 episodes, 
Fred Rogers, 1928-2003, an ordained Presbyterian pastor, spoke a simple but powerful message to his television audience of children. There's no person in the world like you, and I like you just the way you are. Deep and simple, he always insisted, is better than shallow and complex. Filmmaker Benjamin Wagner met Rogers when he spent a summer at his mother's cottage, which happened to be right next door to the television icon. It was a moving experience of feeling safe in unconditional love that so many others in this documentary film who knew Rogers express. The one thing that made him mad, said Rogers, was to see one person demean another. And so he vowed that his own life and work would be what he called an expression of care. I watched this 72-minute documentary on Amazon Instant Video. Once again, Mr. Rogers and Me from 2013. And for poetry, this 4th of July week, we've posted a poem called A Nation. It's by Sheslaw Milos, who lived from 1911 to 2004. Milos won the Nobel Prize in Literature in 1980. The purest of nations on earth when it's judged by a flash of lightning but thoughtless and sly in everyday toil. Pitiless to its widows and orphans, pitiless to its old people, stealing a crust of bread from a child's hand. Ready to offer their lives to draw heaven's wrath on their foes, smiting their enemy with the screams of orphans and women. Entrusting power to men with the eyes of traitors in gold. Elevating men with the conscience of brothel keepers. The best of its sons remain unknown. They appear once only to die on the barricades. Bitter tears of that people cut a song off in the middle. And when the song dies away, noisy voices tell jokes. A shadow stands in a corner, pointing to his heart. Outside, a dog howls to the invisible planet. Great nation, invincible nation, ironic nation. They know how to distinguish truth and yet to keep silent. They camp on marketplaces, conversing in wisecracks. They deal in old door handles stolen from ruins. A nation in crumpled caps, carrying all they own. They go west and south, searching for a place to live. It has no cities, no monuments, no painting or sculpture. Only the word passed from mouth to mouth in prophecy of poets. A man of that nation, standing by his son's cradle, repeats words of hope, always, until now, in vain.
A Nation by Sheslaw Milos. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, July the 5th, 2015. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.